0: seated kids you can head on back to your class we mean Ezra chapter 7 this morning Ezra chapter 7 I'm just gonna be honest I love it that that just happened right there I have no idea who did what or what went wrong I don't I, I don't know and I don't I don't really care to be honest with you because uh Listen, what we're doing here on Sunday mornings, we're not performing for anyone. We are not. This is not a concert. Uh, We are here to study God's Word, to sing God's Word, uh, to pray and ask that the Spirit would change us. And uh, a a little false start, a little whatever with, with music is perfectly fine. In fact, I would prefer that happen than that we get it right every time. Um, and I know that those guys will beat themselves up, and they'll be so frustrated because they want to get it right, as they should. Um, but honestly, um, this is what we're here for. We're just here to sing. We're here together, and this is, this is what we do. So uh, we'll get it wrong, and we'll get it wrong again, and we'll get it wrong in the future, but uh, that's fine because we're just here to sing, and we're here. I'm, I'm much more concerned with the words that we're singing and the truth in those than if we get off a little bit somewhere. And So I'm glad that, I'm glad that it happened. And Rachel, I'm glad that you owned it and you just said, all right, let's roll with it. So um, that is far better. So Ezra chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7. We're back in the book of Ezra. We've been in uh, the book of Esther for a few weeks, but we're back in the book of Ezra now because what we're doing is we're working our way primarily kind of the, the central timeline we're working through is Ezra and Nehemiah. But what we've done is, because Ezra and Nehemiah touch so many different things within Scripture related to different books, prophecies, uh, the book of Esther, and other things, is as these other books that inform the book of Ezra and Nehemiah uh, happen along the, the chronology of how they really happen, we're, we're pulling back and we've looked at those. So we've looked at books like uh, Haggai and Zechariah, we looked at Esther for a few weeks because in the, book of Ezra, in the book of Ezra, see Ezra and Esther is really easy to get those things confused when you're, you're talking. But in the book of Ezra, when you go through the first six chapters, that all happens in one period and then there's this large gap of about, it depends on how you date everything, but probably about 70, 75 years or so in the middle, there's a, a, a large gap and that's when the book of Esther takes place. And then we come back to Ezra chapter 7 where we are today that takes place probably about 20 years post the, uh, the, the book of Esther. So that's kind of the timeline and why we stopped, went to that other book, and now have come back. So that's, that's kind of what we're, we're, we're working through there. And now we're back in the book of Ezra and we're going to look at Ezra chapter 7 uh, this morning. And we're going to talk about this guy. We're finally going to meet this guy, Ezra. We're seven chapters into his book that has his name on it, but we've not met him yet. And what we're going to do is we're, going to, we're finally going to meet him. Because what he's been doing so far, six chapters in, uh, what he's been doing so far is kind of recapping for us what happened when the first wave of exiles came back from exile, from Persia, from, ba- from Babylon, then Persia. They first came back, and that was our guy Zerubbabel, that led that first crew back. And that's what he's been recapping. And now... He's going to talk about his role in this as the second wave of exiles come back, and there's a lot we can talk about, and honestly, I thought we were going to get to more today than I think we're actually going to, we're going to get to, um, but there's a lot that we can that we can do, and what, what I think you're going to see is how God works through people. I think you'll see that a lot this week. I think you'll see it even more next week, but how God chooses to work through. Through people. You see, we can get kind of lost in, in all this stuff, and we can say, well, if God is sovereign, then what does that make us? Are we just puppets? But that's not how it works. See, God chooses, and He says, I am sovereign. I can do whatever I please. But then He says, what He pleases to do is then work through uh, His people and even people that don't know Him. And we'll cover that a lot this week, and or some this week, and a lot, more, a lot more next week. But what we want to do today is just kind of introduce you to this guy. Ezra. Introduce you to this guy, Ezra. So this is Ezra chapter 7, verse 1. Now after this, the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This is Artaxerxes, not Xerxes. That's who we've looked at before in Esther. This is now Xerxes' son, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Ezra, the son of Saraiah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of uh, Ahitab, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Marioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzzi, son of uh, Buki, son of, uh, I don't know, whatever. It just keeps going with all these names that we don't know, right? But if, you, if, if you've been around long enough, you know that whenever the Bible lays out these genealogies like this, with all these hard things to say, whenever it lays them out, a list of these kind of seemingly random names... It's almost always got a purpose for it to be there. There's almost always a reason for it to be there. So we'll get to that here in just a few minutes. Verse 6, this Ezra, the one that is the son of all these people that is in this genealogy, this Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. All right, so... So we're, we reset our timeline now. We know where we're at. We're post the events of Esther. We're, we're, we're post all that happened there. Xerxes is no longer king. His son Artaxerxes is king. This is roughly 20 to 25 years post the events of Esther that we read about last time. Uh, but in this opening paragraph, we can already see the impact that Esther has uh, has had on the royal court and the standing of Jews in the kingdom. Remember, Esther, when she became queen, had told no one that she was a Jew until she absolutely had to in order to save her people. You remember, Mordecai told her to keep that secret. Don't tell anybody about it. And then is whenever Mordecai came and he said, "Now's the time. You have to tell the king because your people, the Jewish people, are in trouble." So then. Esther comes forward and says, hey, you're, you've, you've, inter- you've issued this, this edict to kill all the Jews, but that's all my people. Please don't do this. And that's what happens throughout the rest of the book of Esther. And so then after that, Esther reigns openly as a Jew. And Mordecai, openly a Jew as well, had become second in charge. That's how the book of Esther ended for us. He'd become second in charge. And so what happens is that has raised the prospect for all Jews in the kingdom. Ezra was a benefactor of that. He benefited from the bravery and sacrifice of Esther. He benefited from the leadership and the faithfulness of Mordecai. Had those two not been faithful in their positions to speak up and say, hey, we're Jewish, please don't do this, we're Jewish, and, and, and we, we can't let you do this, king. We need you to, to pull this back. Had they not done that, Ezra never would have had a chance to gain his uh, standing that he had within the royal court where he could go to the king and ask the king for anything. He is a benefactor of Esther and Ezra's work. So this is lesson, this is lesson number one for us to learn about how God works. God is always playing the long game. God is always playing the long game. If you're around here enough, you're going to hear me say this a lot. I said this uh, maybe this exact Sunday a year ago, uh, whenever we first went into all the mess that was uh, COVID. I said very much the same kind of thing. God is always playing the long game. 99% of the time, we view our lives, Through the scope of the moment. How do things look in the moment? It is rare that we choose to look at life in view of the larger picture. Some of you are probably pretty good at planning for your retirement. I'm going to assume some of you guys have said, This is the amount that I need. I have this plan that I need at this age to be able to retire at this age and and all that kind of stuff. So if you are that kind of person, then you are the type of person who has planned ahead, at least for some part of your life, right? You've planned for what's going to happen at that point. You're, you've, you've set all that up. And if you're that type of person, then what that means is you are a in a smaller minority of people who has considered something more than the moment. You've considered something more like a 40 to 50 year plan for your life whenever you started your work career, right? So a 40 to 50 year plan is a, much wider, broader idea. But even that doesn't compare to how God does things. God is always playing the long game over centuries, over millennia, over generation and generation. Most of us, most of us are living life day to day. We are not playing the long game with life. Instead of the 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 responsible retirement plan most of us when it comes to the way We view our lives are playing the penny slots in vegas Hoping that we get a payoff and then really frustrated when god doesn't come through That's how most of us view the way life works, but god is not like that In fact, he's almost exactly the opposite of that We look around and we take stock of things in the moment if things are good then we are content with God and his plan for us. If things are bad, then we're angry, hurt, and we wonder where in the world could God be in all of this. What we talked about last year with this is comparing the the snapshot, the still frame from the film, versus the entire film. The still frame from the film might tell you a lot, and, and it might tell you absolutely nothing. And you might get a completely wrong idea about what the whole film is about, is about if you pull out the wrong still frame. But if you pull out the entire movie or the entire, uh, the entire like, television series, if you pull out the whole thing, then you have a better understanding for where the writers were going and what the director was trying to do, right? So you understand the difference in those two things, the, the snapshot, the still frame versus the full movie. We're really bad at paying attention to the full movie, and we're really good at paying attention to the moment. And this is what is playing out here. God is playing the long game, and Ezra is about to get the payoff for something that he had nothing to do with. It reminds me of one of my favorite verses in Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 10. It says, "And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that He swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob." to give to you, with great and good cities that you did not build, with houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. We drink from wells we did not dig. We eat from vineyards that we did not plant. Our houses are full, but we did not Fill them. Ezra is the same way. Ezra is drinking from a fountain he did not dig. He is the beneficiary of something that he did not do. And so are each of us. We stand on the shoulders of those who came before us. We stand on Ezra's shoulders. We stand on Moses's shoulders just as Ezra did. We stand on shoulders of people that came thousands of years before us and hundreds of years before us. God was doing something in each of their lives that now has an impact on us. You may not know their name. You may not know where they lived. You may not know what they did, but it has impacted you, and you have no idea that is the case. This is how God works. He isn't just answering prayers that you prayed this morning. He's answering prayers that you haven't prayed yet with something that he did 100 years ago. Do you see how that works? Like You don't even know that you need it yet, and he has already 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years ago set something in motion that would answer that prayer for you that you're going to pray tomorrow. That's how God works. That'll blow your mind if you think about it enough. But that's how he works. He is always playing the long game. This is why we say all the time when we quote John Piper that God is doing a thousand things and you might be aware of three or four of them maybe Because maybe what he's doing right now today in this moment, maybe what he's doing right now Something that you're going to learn that you're going to apply to your family may impact someone 200 years from now They're not going to know your name They're not going to know what you did They're not going to know anything that was said here this morning They're not going to really care But God set in motion a chain of events that would then impact them. This is what's happened here with Ezra. Ezra is able to go to the king because of something that had happened 25 years before him. He probably didn't know Esther. He probably didn't know Mordecai, though there's a chance that he may have. But he probably didn't know them. Ezra desperately needs a kind ear from a king so that he can do what he needs to do and what God has called him to do. 20 years prior, Esther and Mordecai had laid that groundwork so that a Jew could come to the king and hear and have a good hearing. And what happened when he went before King Artaxerxes? It says that he, came, he gave him all that he needed, all that he asked for. Turns out he was given all that he asked for and then some. We're not going to have time, but if you read ahead here in 11 through 24 of chapter 7, you can read the letter that Ar- Artaxerxes sent out to, his, to his, uh, his officials and to the governors in the area. And what he said was, give them these, this silver, give them this gold. You're not allowed to tax them. You're not allowed to put tolls on them as they make their way back to Jerusalem. Give them this and give them this and give them this constantly saying give them all of these things open up the royal treasury and let them take things back that they may fill their temple and that they may do all that they need to do it's a pretty cool uh, story it's the third time so far in the book of of ezra the third time that a king has said take the 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 royal treasury and make it yours take the royal treasury and make it yours Secular king, a a, a pagan king, three different pagan kings, three different times has said, take all that you need, we'll help you pay for this and finance this. God works in a lot of different ways. Usually it's through his people, but sometimes it's through people who don't know him at all. So it works with these kings in this place here. Ezra needed help. And he was able to get help because of things that had happened before him. And then we see this amazing way in which Artaxerxes stands up for the Jewish people and says, I'll bless you as you go back. So who is this Ezra anyway? Who is this Ezra that can go before a king, ask that he be able to take a bunch of people back with him, and the king would say, here's all this extra stuff that you can have uh, as well, because I want to bless you as you go on your trip. Who is this Ezra guy, and why do we have a book named after him? The book is probably named after him because he he wrote the book. That's most likely why the book is named after him. He, he may have written First and Second Chronicles as well. We don't really know, uh, and he probably and he will show up again in the book of Nehemiah too. He probably wrote some of the pieces that go with the book of uh, Nehemiah. But this opening paragraph gives us a pretty good scan of what we need to know about this guy Ezra. The first thing that we need to notice is his lineage. The first thing we got to notice is his lineage. This is all the those those things that we uh, are all those names that that are hard to pronounce. But if you keep going all the way to the end, what you see is that it traces him all the way back to Aaron, goes all the way back to Moses's brother Aaron. So why is this important? It is important because it establishes him. It sets him up to serve in the role of priest whenever he returns to Jerusalem. This was desperately missed. They needed someone from the priestly line to come in and serve in that way. Think about where they were coming from. All right, So Israel had been in exile for 70 years. We see in the beginning of Ezra, the temple eventually gets built, but that takes uh, a little while. And then there's this large gap that is there. So then you get this large gap. It's probably another 70 years later from when uh, when Zerubbabel had led them back and then everything else that had happened. So what we're talking is roughly 140 years post the beginning of exile when Ezra is coming on to the scene. So let me ask you, do you know what a what church in america looked like in the 1880s do you have a good feeling for what it would look like if you walked into church on a sunday morning i'll tell you this the pastor's not going to be wearing blue jeans that's not what it's going to look like you're not you're probably going to be seated men over here women over here maybe that had changed a little bit by that point depends on the tradition that you're in but you might have some vague idea of what it would have looked like in the 1880s if you're well-versed in church history. But now let me ask you, if you came, if, if it had been the 1880s since there had been a single church service that had been held, right? So you've got to go all the way back to the 1880s to figure out when they had had church at all. Do you think you could walk in here this morning and say, here's exactly how they did it? Here's what it looked like. Here's the things that they observed. Here's the things that they did. Here's all the things that they laid out. And you say, Well, if I've got my Bible, I can open my Bible and I can pull out most of it. I think I could probably put together the way that it worked. Especially if I'm Jewish and I'm trying to put together the service that they would have held. Most of that's written out. But here's the problem you don't have that. Because not everybody's got an old testament, already got a Bible just they don't just have the Pentateuch laying around and the law of Moses laying around. It's on a scroll somewhere, and they need a scribe, and they need uh, a priest to be able to interpret it, to be able to talk about it, to be able to do all the sacrifices that are needed there. But they didn't have any of that, because they didn't have a temple, and not everybody had the scrolls. So you can imagine the chaos that worship would have been, that things would have been when they come back from exile. Nobody knew what to do. People had generally had an idea like, oh, it seems like I remember they did this, On this day, but I can't remember exactly what they said. I can't remember exactly what it looked like. Nobody had a clue what to do. So Ezra says, I'm coming back, and I'm going to come back, and I'm going to teach the people what to do. They were in desperate need of a scholar. They were in desperate need of a priest. This was Ezra. and this This is why we trace his lineage all the way back to Aaron to know that he could faithfully serve in that role as a priest. So Ezra's role here is critical. It's so critical, in fact. And here's, here's the thing. If I were to ask you, tell me the ten most influential people in the Old Testament. If I were to ask you that, that just to, to write out the, 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 five most in, the, the five most critical people in the Old Testament. You're probably going to get Moses. You're probably going to get David. And then after that, it's going, be, it's, going a, it's going to be a bit of scattershot where you go from there. I'd almost be willing to bet that Ezra is not going to make your list. But the rabbis, after Ezra's time, will tell you that Ezra was second only to Moses in his influence. Because what he did was, a, was functionally a second Moses, he was leading his people out of bondage back to Jerusalem, just as Moses had led his people out of bondage, out of Egypt to the promised land. He was doing very much the same kind of a role. And just as Moses had to give his people the law because they did not have the law before him, Ezra has to give the law again to the people of Israel because they didn't know the law anymore either. Nobody knew what they were supposed to do. So you can debate where does Ezra belong on that list in the top five, but he fits easily in the top five, maybe just right behind Moses. Certainly a lot of the rabbis would have said the same thing. Ezra is seen as one of the central and most important characters in the Old Testament. This is why it's so important that we know our Bibles. This is why it's so important that we know the storyline of Scripture and how things work in Scripture. We miss too much of what God is trying to teach us and tell us. Whenever all we do is just hit the high points and go back to our uh, uh, our, our our comfort stories that we know so well, we must know because listen, not a lot of people are going to open up to Ezra and Nehemiah for devotional reading. Most pastors only preach on it when they need they have a building project to do, right? And they and they want to rally people around that. But we need to know the storyline of scripture if we are going to be people who understand who God is and what he does. Look in Ezra chapter 7, verse 7. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king. So this is who went with Ezra whenever they went back to Jerusalem. Some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and the Levites, the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. That's the second time we've heard that now. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. If you're looking for the money verse in Ezra, that's it right there. If you're looking for that one verse that people know the most, that people quote the most, that's probably going to be it, Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So what all do we know about Ezra? So we, we talked to all these different things. We, we know he's from a priestly line. We know he's willing to go to the king and to ask for things to make a journey. And he knows, and we know that he's willing to lead people back to Jerusalem. This tells us a little bit more. They set out on this journey. Now the second wave going back to Jerusalem. In verse 9, we're told that God's hand was upon Ezra. It says it three times in chapter 7 that God's hand was upon Ezra three different times and we'll talk about that a little bit more next week and why that is so important But for what I want to do for the rest of our time today is I just want to f- focus in on what it says here in verse 10 It's the money verse like I said And it's a great one if you want to if you want to take something to memorize for the week This is a nice one if you don't have it memorized. This is a good one Ezra had set his heart heart to study the law of the lord to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And this verse is a great verse for anyone who would be a teacher of God's word. But I hope when you hear me say that, you don't hear me say preachers. Because that's not what I'm talking about. This is not a verse just for preachers. This is not just a verse for seminary students. This is not just a verse for those who would stand up on a platform and teach. This is a verse for all of us. For anyone, for anyone who wishes to show others what the Bible has to say. And my hope is that that's every one of you here this morning. And Ezra nails the order too. It's the only order that makes sense in these three three things. You know the word, you do the word, you teach the word. Those three things. You can't get those out of order. You can't do it or teach it if you don't know it. And if you know it and you try to teach it, but you haven't figured out how to do it yet, then you're going to run into all kinds of problems, which is a big problem that we have within Christianity today, is that we're convinced because people know the Word, then that means they're mature enough to teach the Word. But that's not always the case. You've got to get those in order. Know the Word, do the Word, teach the Word. So let's walk through all three of these and see what we can learn about those. So the first one, know the Word. I've already hit on this a little bit this morning, but let me do it again. We cannot be people who do not know our Bibles. We simply cannot be people who do not know our Bibles. If we want to love God, we must know His Word. The two things go hand in hand. Too often we can say, well, I I, I understand that I need to study this, and I do want to study this, but I'm more interested in the experience, and so the music's got to hit just right, and the bridge has got to build just right, and I've really got to kind of feel it. And if I don't feel it, I don't know that I love God, but I'm here to tell you that it's far more important that you know the Word of God than that you feel it with the music. You need to know the Word of God. If you have no desire to know the Bible, you cannot, in really, you cannot in any real sense claim to have a love for him too. Now that's a big statement. But if you have no desire to study scripture, no desire to know what his word says, then you cannot in any sense claim to love him too. Now I'm not saying you have to read your Bible or know your Bible to be a Christian. You do not have to have the books of the Bible memorized. You do not have to be able to cite verse for verse everything that's in the Bible in order to be a Christian. You do not. Jesus saves us, not the Bible. But I am saying you have no idea if you're a Christian or not without the Scriptures. You must know the Scriptures. I'm saying you have no way of knowing how to please your King and your Master if you do not know the Bible. Now sure, the Spirit leads us, absolutely He does, but the Spirit leads us in conjunction with the revealed Word of God, never against it. The two work in tandem. At no point in Scripture do we see uh, the Bible and the Spirit set against one another. We always see how the Spirit works with the revealed Word of God in order to teach us about who God is and the nature of who He is. Those two things work together. Never in competition. We need not seek to hear the Spirit if our Bible set closed on our desks. The two work together. They are both there to lead us. The Spirit revealing the Scripture's meaning and the Scripture teaching us the truths that the Spirit will ultimately call us to do. One does the work, the other teaches, and then the Spirit does the work again. It all works together. So we must know the Word Ezra, it seems, was unique in his zeal and his ability to know the Scriptures, above and beyond all of his other peers. Perhaps it was simply because he had the opportunity, but there's no doubt that there were other Jewish uh, scholars and scribes who had the opportunity to know the Word of God. But it seems as though Ezra was unique in his zeal to know it, and his zeal to do it, and his zeal to teach it. Those with access to the Scriptures at the time were few. Those that loved them and loved the law were even fewer. may not not be said of us today. We have full access to the Scriptures. Every one of you that's in here, you can walk away this morning with a new Bible. If you want, come talk to me. I will give you a Bible if you do not have one. Every one of us have full access. Most of us have, have several at home, maybe dozens at home. We have full access to the Scriptures. Access to the Scriptures is not our problem. Most of us have the ability to know more in in a day's worth of YouTube videos about the Bible than generations before us could know in their entire lifetime. The information is readily available to us. The question is, what does that produce in us? What does all that information do for us? That's what number two is. Do the word. I love how this is in here. I love how it doesn't just say that Ezra set to know the word and teach the word. It's got this little bit in there. Do the word right in the middle. We all know people who can cite Bible verses, who can win every Bible argument, and can win at Bible trivia, and can call out people for all the obscure things that they do or all the obvious things that they do in their life that don't line up with Scriptures. And then we watch them and we're convinced they have no idea how to apply any of it to their own lives. We all know people like that. Friends, we do not study the Bible for information. Information is great, but we do not study the Bible primarily for information. We study it for transformation. If God's word is not working into your mind and then working its way into your heart as a result of that, you're doing it wrong. The whole idea is that it comes into your mind, you learn and you know more, and then your heart is transformed by what you know. Most of us would love to know more about the Bible, but I wonder how many of us are truly interested in living as a seasoned saint as a result of it. You hear me talk a lot here about the art and the science of being a disciple, about how it looks different for each of us, how there is a science, there is a certain things that you need to do, but the art of how that works for you, the dance of what that looks like for you in your own life is going to be different for each one of us. But this is what I'm talking about where you learn the science, you learn the basics of what it means to be a Christian, and then as you grow in grace and affection for God, it then begins to change who you are and what you do and what your life looks like. You know you are growing in grace. You know you are growing in your affection and love for God when that gap begins to close between what you know and what you do. If that gap widens... If that gap widens, not only are you not growing in your love for God, Jesus says you're twice the devil of hell. If that's the way your life constantly looks, and that you are growing in your knowledge, but your application of those scriptures is lacking. spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, solitude, silence, studying and knowing the word, scripture memorization, all of those things. Somewhere along the line, uh, we got it mixed up what those are for. Somewhere along the line, we believe that the more of those things we do, the more God will like us. That we do spiritual disciplines in order to make ourselves more lovely to God, but that is not how it works in fact that's the the exact opposite we don't do spiritual disciplines in order to make ourselves more lovely to god we do spiritual disciplines to make god more lovely to us and this is what the bible bible study should be for us not the intent of of adding more knowledge and verses in our head but that those things would go in our head and then it would change our hearts so when Ezra says that he, wants to, he needs to do the word, I think he has two things in mind here. He is a priest. I think he's got two things in mind. I think one that he has in mind is applying it and seeing how it fleshes out in your life. But I also think what he has in mind is the way in which the Jewish people would enact all of their feasts, all of their sacrifices, all of the things that were the, the daily and the, 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 the communal rituals that they did, how they did the word. I think he has that in mind as well. But that description even that is a is, it is a challenge for us. When we read God's word, when we read God's word, how does it look when it is lived out for us? We can't just be a people that know the Bible, we must be a people that live it. You can hear echoes of this in James teaching in the New Testament. James chapter 1 verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. The, the implication from James is clear. If knowledge of the word does not translate to action around the word, then what are you doing? It is foolishness. And finally, teach the word. Ezra is no doubt a teacher. It will become clear as we go throughout the rest of this book, and really even when we get into the book of Nehemiah, he is clearly a teacher. When he teaches, the people respond, and they respond dramatically. And we have several instances of that that we will look at. But even with him being clearly a gifted teacher, this call to teach the Word is a call to every single one of us. Now, if you say, well, wait a minute, my spiritual gift is not teaching. That is entirely possible. It may not be teaching. But here's the way I need you to look at this. Your knowledge of Scripture should never end with you. When you learn something about the Bible, when you study the Bible, you cannot see yourself as the primary recipient of your studies, and then it it dead ends with you. Studying the Bible should never be a dead end street for Christians. Instead, you should see yourself like a link in a chain or even better, like like a guy in a bucket brigade. You know what I'm talking about whenever they're trying to put out the fire and you got the buckets and you're just handing them down the line? That is how Bible study should be with you. Because you see, if if the water just stops with you, what happens is, A, the fire doesn't get put out, and B, you get really, really wet, but the job doesn't get done. You see, the the water kind of like puddles and, and pools around you, but nothing actually gets accomplished, right? Nothing actually gets done. For so many Christians, this is what Bible study is. Let me accumulate as many buckets of water as I can, and the more buckets I got, the more I think you'll like me, and the more I think God will like me. But the call for us is to be disciples. We are to be disciples of Jesus and we are to disciple others. We are to teach others. And so what should happen is when you are handed that truth that is passed down from other saints, when you are are handed that truth, you should be looking, who can I turn and hand this truth off to? Because if it just stays right here, I'm not going to get the job done, and the fire's not going to get put out. So you should be identifying, who can I pass this to? Who is it? So that's my question for you guys this morning. Who are you passing the the bucket to? Now, you should be filling up the bucket. You need to make sure it's full of water. That is going to be be, uh, knowing the Word, studying the Bible. You've got to be standing in line in order to, to pass the bucket down. You got to be you got to be in the place where you need to be. That's doing the word. But then my question is, who are you handing it to? The Olympics are going to start here in just just a, f- a few months. Lord willing, I don't know. How, I don't think they push them back again. Hopefully, we're going to get to watch the Olympics. And What you're going to see there is all kinds of different relay races, right? And you got the baton that gets handed off whenever you're you're doing the, the 4 by 100 re- relay, right? You get the po- baton that gets handed off. What ha- what happens if they come through and they they try to hand off that baton and it gets dropped? What happens? They're disqualified. They can't finish the race. Listen, God has called us to hand off the baton. He's called us to hand it to the next person. Second Timothy chapter 2 verse 2 says, And the things that you heard me say in the, presence of many, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable people who will be also qualified to teach to others. Do you see that work there? You heard it from me. You turn and trust it to others who then in turn hand it off to others. Do you see that? It's the bucket brigade. Carrying the water all the way until the fire is put out. This is what we've been called to do. So who is it that you're called to teach? Certainly, if you're a parent, it's going to be your kids. Absolutely, that is the case. But I want to challenge you not to just stop there. Who else is it, is it a coworker? Is it a coworker who doesn't know Jesus? Now, it's, you're not going to do well if you go in there and you walk in. And you're going to be like, let me tell you about the lineage of Ezra. And you start working through all these names that they don't understand, right? That's not going to be the most effective way. But whenever they start talking about their life and they start talking about how they are, they are empty or how they are missing out on something or how they are going again to do this thing on the weekend and it's the only thing that seems to be uh, something that brings joy in their life, you at some point are going to need to say, hey, listen, man, there's more to life than this. Let me tell you what I've seen in the Bible. Let me tell you what Scripture has told me. Now, they may look at you like you got three eyes. That's fine. And, and it certainly seems the direction the culture is going over the next uh, several years that the more you talk about the Bible, the more you're either going to get looked at like you're crazy because it's irrelevant or the more you're going to get looked at with scorn because they think that you're uh, a hateful person and they think that you are uh, actually what's wrong with society. It's going to get harder. It doesn't matter. You've got you to keep the bucket going because it's never meant to end with you. sure you dwell in it sure you soak in it sure you meditate in it and then whenever you get there you say okay what's next and are you going to have all the answers to their questions of course not none of us do are you going to be able to teach it perfectly of course not none of us can but one, i'll tell you it's a community project so maybe you begin that and then what you need to do is you need to get them over to a front porch community and say, "Hey, come, come meet, come meet, come meet my, my my friends. All we're gonna do is eat. You don't have to worry about it. We're not gonna be like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna have some some wings and then we're gonna sucker you in with uh, with some teaching here at the end. We're just gonna. Meet. I just want you to know, there's other Christians and we don't have three eyes. We're actually pretty normal people. We just love Jesus and we think there's more to life than what we can see and what's in front of us. And I think." I think it'd be great for you to hear that too. So just come hang out with us. Bring them on a Sunday morning. Invite them to study the the Bible with you. Walk through a a book with them. And then you're free to ask questions too. You don't have to have all the answers. But as you study Scripture, the Spirit reveals the, the truth of the Scripture. You see what is there and you pass on the bucket. This is what we are called to as Christians. This is the model. Know the word, do the word, teach the word. So who are you looking to teach? Who are you looking to disciple? This world is really good at making disciples. They're aggressive at it. And they are really, really good at it. Unfortunately, the church has become very passive and we're not real good at it. What I'm, what I'm calling you to do is to, to follow the model of Ezra. Become active in your discipleship. Disciple one another within the church and the disciple others outside of the church and pass on what you know pass on the truth that has been handed down to you and then you just keep that chain going. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning, this is a humbling truth for us. That we would have that, that we would be the people that you have called us to be. A people who are looking to disciple others. The truth of this message that The truth of this message that you have called your people to take your truth to the world. Father, where our actions do not line up with your word, help us to see them. Open our eyes to our blind spots. And help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. And Father, teach us to love your word. That we may love you more.